0: LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Before this week's podcast, I've got some exciting news to share with everyone. I've started a Patreon site. Now, on there are brand new video podcasts so you can see me, and lots more besides. It's a general hub, I hope, for fans of history, fans of archaeology, travel enthusiasts. I suppose, above all else, it's for all-round admirers of an open-minded approach to life, to love and everything in between. It's about seeing how the lessons of history The glimpses we catch of the past can help us to find comfort and navigate our way through the confusion of the modern world. To join and get access, all you have to do is sign up. You can find Neil Oliver on the Patreon website. Follow the links on this podcast or on the Neil Oliver Love Letter Instagram. You'll help to support this podcast as well as getting exclusive access to the new video podcasts. I must say and stress that the love letter to the British Isles is and always will be free. In the meantime, here's this week's love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. Robert the Bruce got together with the Scottish Church and they said, when the time is right, we will together make you king. In this podcast, we're coming face to face with the blood and gore of a brutal battle. A defining moment in the long wars of Scottish independence. A powerful English army, spearheaded by its dreaded heavy cavalry. A lazy, meandering river, overlooked by a mighty castle, sitting atop the crag and tail of an extinct volcano. A Scottish king on a mission and a bold and beautiful abbey, where Scotland's future was plotted and planned. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me, and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. Last week we walked in one of the loveliest glens in the land and stood before what may well be the oldest living thing in Europe. Where are we today? Well in that great fun way of this love letter to the British Isles as far as I'm concerned it's a completely different place again. Uh, Instead of dappled sunlight on ancient trees we're in a, well, you could safely say a dark hellish vortex of clashing steel blades and the thunder of war we're in the town of Stirling at Cambus Kenneth Abbey, where Robert the Bruce prepared for a battle that would become a defining moment in Scottish history. It's the one, the only, Battle of Bannockburn. The love letter today comes from uh, Cambus Kenneth Abbey in Stirling. Cambus Kenneth is a, a good word to say, you know, we'll get to it in due course. It, it basically means the safe place. Or the Bay of Kenneth, but we'll get to it. The, the point is, it's it's the ruins of an an abbey, a 12th century abbey that was raised by Aroasian priests monks. I think the the important context. It's maybe worth sort of going over old ground again. A lot of my inspiration, a, a lot of these places that I love, I love because they make me feel that I've come physically close to either a historical person or a historical event. Now, for lots of people, not just Scots by any means, the battlefield of Bannockburn is an attraction. People interested in Scottish history, British history, they want to come and visit the battlefield of Bannockburn. And the honest truth is, it's a hard one to visit. It's more than 700 years ago. It was a huge encounter between thousands of people and it's always been hard to pin down where the fighting was so although we know it was all taking place within sight of say Stirling Castle Stirling Castle sits up high on a plug of volcanic rock you can see for miles around and so it's like the kind of eye of a storm and the Battle of Bannetburn was that storm that swirled around it o- over many many square miles so I, in my kind of enthusiasm, my my need to to get to somewhere where I can stand and think I'm close, well, Cambus Kenneth Abbey does it. But we'll get to it. Probably, having mentioned Bannockburn, we should probably talk about Bannockburn. Obviously, it's hugely important to lots of people for all sorts of reasons. It does go down as probably, it's on record as the greatest home win by the Scottish team against the English team of all time. It's a resounding 1-0 win for the for the plucky Scotsman against you know what was a larger English force at the time. So it matters to all sorts of people for, for all sorts of reasons. If you come to Stirling now I live in Stirling, so I know this particularly well I go over to Cambus Kenneth all the time because my daughter and one of my sons get piano lessons. Within a hundred yards of the of the ruin, so I know it really well. But if you come into Stirling and you follow the brown signs, you know those uh, heritage signs for the for the Battle of Bannockburn, you'll probably get taken to a National Trust for Scotland building beside what is now the Glasgow Road. Uh, and and you go in there, and there's a uh, in, in recent times there's, there's quite a high tech visitor centre there with you know 3D holographic presentations of the battle and all that. It's, it's quite good fun. It's about two miles south of the city centre, two miles south of the castle. And if you go into the, the open ground that's around the, the visitor centre, there's a, a what they call a rotunda, a, a circle of breeze blocks, basically. It's, it's a little bit better than it sounds, but, you know, frankly, not that much. It's a big, a big a circle, tall, tw- 20 feet tall. And it's supposed to give you a place to stand where you can look towards the castle and then south in the direction of where the English army came from. And also there To me In that particular location By far and away The best thing Is an enormous statue Of Robert the Bruce On his war horse Pilkington Jackson Is the sculptor And it's twice life size So a twice life size Bruce In his armour Is sitting on top Of a massive Armoured horse It's great Tradition has it, and it is almost certainly true, that the location is a high point where Robert Bruce himself, perhaps, or maybe some of his lieutenants, they were up there, maybe with a a flag, a rallying point, so that the people in the surrounding area could see where the king was. And it, it afforded them a view south, along the Roman road. In the 14th century... The way north from England to Scotland was still via a road that had been built by the Romans during the Roman uh, occupation of of Britannia. And so they were waiting for the the army uh, to come. So it's perfectly reasonable to associate that location with the Battle of Bannockburn. But no fighting took place there. No one really thinks that anything of any particular note happened there at the time. Now, the reason that the Bruce was on that location, waiting for the English army to come. It was a bit of a long story. By 1314, that's the famous date when the battle happened, Robert was riding the crest of a wave. Uh, He'd been waging a successful guerrilla war against the occupying English army. The English had garrisoned Scotland, and one by one he was knocking them over at their various castles and strong points. And Stirling Castle was the last. By 1314, Robert's been fighting for independence and to be recognised as a king since 1306. And by 1314, he's nudging close, he's getting close to to the finishing line. Stirling Castle and the English garrison had been besieged by his brother, Edward, Edward Bruce. So he had been keeping his forces prowling around the castle, making life difficult for the English garrison inside. But possibly unbeknownst to his brother, he had struck a deal with the commander of the English garrison, and he had said, if you can persuade an English army to come to within a mile of Stirling Castle by Midsummer's Day in 1314, I'll back off. He didn't presumably think it was going to happen, but it did. And when word reached Robert that this deal had been struck, we think, although we can't be 100% sure, that Robert was angry. Because the secret of his success had been guerrilla warfare Striking without warning You know, just springing an attack And and always carrying the day What he'd always avoided was what you call a pitched battle Which is where two sides agree in advance that they're going to meet And that's a different kind of dance You know, rather than just running up behind somebody And hitting them in the back of the head with a club Which is the equivalent of guerrilla warfare A pitched battle means that everyone knows it's coming it's like a prize fight that's well advertised and people can make preparations. And Robert really knew that he didn't have the force of numbers, the men, to take on. At that point, the English army were regarded, not just in Britain, but in Europe, as a serious force. It was dominated by heavy cavalry, war horses and lots of them. So we think he was angry with his brother when his brother came and said, the English are coming. But it was a fit accompli by that point. And so... Robert decided to just turn a, a challenge into an opportunity So he gets to Stirling And in using techniques that he had practised elsewhere He starts preparing the ground and, and anybody who's heard about the Battle of Bannockburn Will know that famously he dug lots of pits With sharp stakes in the bottom of them Sort of Vietnam War style In rows and rows and rows of these things Covered over, camouflaged The idea was that if cavalry charged towards you the hoofs would go into these pits And the horse's legs would be broken and. And it was a, it was a technique that, that Robert had used elsewhere. And famously, he deployed the same technique at Stirling. But in any event, he came and he prepared the ground. And so that's the background. That's why he's there with his army, much smaller than the force he knows is coming. And they're looking down the road. Now, you know, Paul, you were there with me when, when we did an, an archaeological excavation together. And we found a bit of the Roman road. Do you remember it? Yeah, I remember being pretty astonished that we could be in the middle of a normal agricultural field with nothing but farmland all around. And bit by bit, a Roman road came into view. It, it was quite amazing. I mean, we were all excited by it because it, it had that modern cambered shape yeah. high in the middle and then sloped down to gutters either side to take the water away. So it, it, it was amazing. We, we sat on it and we walked on it and we were just, you know, our minds were blown. And from where we found it, we could see Stirling Castle, do you remember? Yeah. So we were, in the, we were in the vicinity of it. So you, you and I have both seen archaeological evidence of the road that the English army came up Edward II was the English king by then Edward I Edward Longshanks that everyone's seen in the movie Braveheart he was dead by then his rather less warlike son let's say was king but he had dispatched a big army not maybe his best men but some of his best men kind of a B team maybe not the A-team that he would have sent to France, but he'd sent up a, a substantial number of men, what should have been more than enough to tackle Robert Bruce. So they turn up on the 23rd of June. So they're there, they've met the terms of the contract. And theoretically, chivalry might ought to have dictated that Robert just withdraw and leave the garrison, the English garrison in peace, because after all, that was the deal that was struck. But they didn't. They stayed in place. They sort of welched on the deal. And so on the 23rd of June, there was a first clash by heavy horse english cavalry made a charge towards you know some of the scottish army that they could see either side of the road but it was it was an inconclusive encounter blood was spilled horses were brought down men were killed on both sides but it didn't it didn't amount to a great deal and the english decided to stay so tradition has it that they go away from the high ground which is where Robert Bruce had been waiting for them, possibly with his, fla- with his standard and, and all the rest. And they went down onto the flat land that lies beside the River Forth. Stirling existed really because it was a place where there was a bridge across the River Forth. And it was famously the bridge where, some years before, William Wallace had also bested an English army. At the end of the 13th century, an army had come up and he'd kicked the living daylights out of them. So Stirling was all about the crossing on the River Forth that was commanded by the castle. So the English army go down to spend the night down on the, on the floodplain and they seem to have, we think, according to the chronicles that were written afterwards, they seem to have decided that a patch of land that had the River Forth at its back and that had two tributaries of the River Forth either side the Pell Stream and the Bannock Burn. It defined an area of low-lying land in which they felt a bit protected, because there was waterways on three sides, and they were facing the only line of approach. So they bedded down there, and in all likelihood, they expected that having had a go, that the Scottish army would just withdraw, like he did, normally. Yeah, they would just they would just pull away. They would wait till it got dark. And they would disappear, ready to fight another day. So the English commanders almost certainly thought they had done all the fighting that they were going to do. But then they waking up in the morning, alarmed, just as day breaks. Word reaches the English that the Scots are not just still there, but they're coming. <laughs> okay, they're on their way. They're actually they're actually on their way and there's all sorts of fantastic romanticized accounts of the run up to the battle one of my favorites of incidents is as the english commanders watched the scots soldiers foot soldiers approach and they all kneel to pray they they kneel down and pray and the english commander says oh, look they're begging my forgiveness they've just come to say a kind of sorry And a knight standing beside him, who who is Scottish and knows the Scots, says, They might be begging forgiveness, but not from you, but for what they're about to do. And then they stand up and they bring their their spears forward. They're all armed with long, long spears, many, many metres long. And they form up in these shiltrons, groups of men close together, with their spears forward, they're like angry hedgehogs en masse and they come trotting towards the English. And the English, who, are, who rely on their heavy horses, they don't have time to get ready. They're just up. They're just awake. And there's chaos in the English camp and they try to form up. But because of the pell Stream and the bannockburn on either side, they're hemmed in. So they're, although they've got the greater numbers... Probably twice, maybe three times as many people and horses as the Scots, most of them are at the back. There's a narrow front facing the Scots, and they can't they can't get the horses out into the wide line that would then form up and and gallop you know towards the, the oncoming infantry. So before the English know where they are, a narrow front that the Scots can handle with their smaller numbers, you know, they can handle them sort of piecemeal. And they they bring in their spears and they start hacking into the English army. And behind there's chaos, there's all these English cavalry and English foot soldiers who can't do anything except watch. They've got the river Forth at their back, and they've got rivers either side, and they can't get into the action, and they're just watching while this attritional battle starts to develop right before their eyes. There's panic, sets in quite quickly, and a lot of the English soldiers traditionally that can't get involved in the fighting start trying to hightail it out of there. And they do that by getting into the River Forth or into the Burn or the Pellstream either side. But they're all togged up in heavy chainmail and, and other armaments that make them heavy. And the word is that hundreds, thousands of them drown trying to get away. The folklore says that the, the Burn and the River Forth and the Pellstream ran with English blood and that so many bodies piled up at certain uh, shallows that in the aftermath a Scottish soldier could walk dry shod across the river on the backs of the English dead, you know, all this kind of hyperbolic description of the death toll starts to build. But it means that on the 24th of June, 1314, Robert the Bruce, against all the odds and against really maybe everyone's expectations, except his own, he secures this immortal victory over the English. Now, as things turn out It doesn't end this, the wars of independence Not by a long stroke There's there's years of it still to go But Bannetburn is a high point And it definitely demonstrates to one and all That with the wind in the right direction The Scottish army, Robert's tactics Are to be taken seriously So it matters It doesn't end the war And, and bring Scottish independence in 1314 But it's a big, important step along the way So that's the Battle of of Bannockburn. And for those reasons, for many reasons, people want to go and see it. But because it happened 700 years ago and because it was so big and so wide-ranging, once things got going, there'd be people running about all over the place. It just developed and moved. And because it was fought over two days, there's there's been all sorts of speculation about exact locations. But you can go to Cambus Kenneth Abbey. Now, Cambus Kenneth Abbey sits within a meander of the River Forth, viewed from above the River Forth and the Pellstream and the Bannetburn and everything. They're like like loops of silver chain from a dropped necklace in the grass. And in the 9th century, right, if I can go back in time a little bit, Kenneth MacAlpin fought a battle with the Picts and was victorious. And that gives the name Cambus Kenneth to that location. And in the 12th century these Aroisian monks, remembering and venerating the importance of that location, built an abbey. And it was a wealthy, it was a a successful and wealthy abbey. And then, like everything else, during the time of the Reformation, it got torn apart. The, The monasteries were regarded as places of great wealth, corrupt in many ways, as far as a lot of people were concerned, and they took them apart. And so now when you go to Cambus Kenneth, there are foundation levels of walls in the grass, so you can see the shapes of the buildings. But there's a three-storey bell tower called a campanile. And for those interested in bell towers, it's regarded as being the best upstanding one in Scotland. And campaniles always always sat separate from abbey buildings because (laughs) when the bells were rung, they they created vibration. And the architects worried that the vibration of the bell tower might actually make the abbey fall down. So traditionally, they were built separately. And for that reason, perhaps, and, and also because it would have been a useful observation tower, it was left standing while the rest of the abbey was taken apart. People come into Stirling, they'll also, when they go up to the castle, they'll see what's called Mar's Work, which was a house that was built for the Earl of Mar. He was a guy connected to the royal family. And he built his big house up beside the castle using masonry that was robbed out of what had been Cambus Kenneth Abbey but if you go to Cambus Kenneth Abbey the reason for going there is that history books tell us that Edward Bruce had his headquarters there so for all the while that he was besieging the English garrison in the weeks and months before the battle he was based there And at the time, in 1314, there would only have been two stone buildings in Stirling. One was the castle, and the other was Cambus Kenneth Abbey. I was involved in a second archaeological excavation at Bannetburn, years later, in the run-up to the 700th anniversary in 2014. And we used metal detectors, or metal detectorists used metal detectors, over a wide area. And in in that area, defined by the Pell Stream and the Bannetburn, we found three things, three items: a stirrup, a spur, and a copper alloy cross with some traces of enamel on it. And you can't be certain, but because of the location and because of the style of them, we were pretty confident that those were three artifacts that had been dropped during the course of the Battle of Bannockburn. It's hard to say because there's other reasons why men on horseback would be there down through the centuries, but the location made it possible. The little cross might have been the kind of thing that a wealthy man might have had as, as a decorative piece, either on himself or maybe on his horse furniture. It's hard to say. But when we did metal detector survey beside campus Kenneth Abbey, we found a silver penny, an English silver penny, that would have been minted around the end of the 13th, early 14th century. In 1314, it would have amounted to about a month's pay for an English soldier. And it may have ended up at Cambus Kenneth Abbey because in the aftermath of the battle, the Scots would have gone through the the English dead, cutting their purses off and and taking away anything else of value. And so that one silver penny might have come all the way back to Cambus Kenneth Abbey as part of the booty. And then it was lost again. You know, maybe in the confusion and all the piles of wealth, maybe more than one coin was dropped before everyone eventually withdrew and and silence settled again around Cambus Kenneth Abbey in the aftermath of the battle. So those four things, a stirrup, the cross, an iron spur, also from a horseman, and the fourth was this silver cross penny. So for me, for me, if you're interested in feeling physically close to the time of the Battle of Bannockburn, I say go to Cambus Kenneth Abbey because Edward Bruce was there at the time of the battle. And that silver penny suggests that Scottish soldiers came back there after the battle to count up their their spoils of war. And in the the heat of the moment, at least that one penny was dropped. And the landscape around it, you're right beside the River Forth. And I swear to you, in, in that bit of landscape beside campus Kenneth Abbey, it doesn't look like the landscape has changed very much. It's farmland now, it would have been farmland then and you very much get the atmosphere and from Cambus Kenneth Abbey you can look towards the castle and in your mind's eye or in your imagination you can take yourself back and sort of sniff the air if you like and kind of catch a little trace of the scent of the battle of 1314 and it's better than that, there's better reasons than that Cambus Kenneth Abbey mattered in the story of Robert the Bruce before the time of the battle. In 1306, he went on to murder his rival, John Cummins, in Dumfries, and that started the ball rolling. He declared himself king at that point. But in 1304, two years before that momentous event in Dumfries, he was at Cambus Kenneth Abbey for a secret meeting. He was a liegeman of King Edward I in 1304, he had sworn allegiance to Edward I at that point. Willingly or not, he was notionally taking the knee for Edward I, but he snuck away. Edward was up in Stirling at that point, and Robert took the chance to sneak away to Cambus-Kenneth Abbey where he had an illicit meeting with a Scottish churchman called William Lamberton, who was a senior churchman, a senior bishop, and they had an objective. William Lamberton as a senior churchman, was anxious about the status of the church in Scotland. For as long and longer than anyone could remember, the Christian church in Scotland stood independent. It wasn't under the control of the archbishoprics of York or Canterbury. It was its own independent entity. It called itself Rome's special daughter, and the Scottish church believed that it had a direct line, a red phone if you like, connecting them to the Pope in Rome without being interfered with by the English arm of the church. And they wanted to maintain that because it lent them power. And power meant wealth and influence and all the rest of it. But because of a king, an English king like Edward, they had a sense that their, their independence was being eroded. And so they met together, men with, with a shared interest, and they met in secret, in dire secrecy, at Cambus Kenneth Abbey in 1304, and they, sw- they both signed a secret document that Robert said in the event of him becoming king, he would support the independence of the Scottish church. And in return, William Lamberton was able to swear on behalf of the Scottish church that they would support Robert's claim on the Scottish throne. And they signed a document and the fine print on the document said, if either man let the other down, there would be a fine of £10,000. Imagine how much money £10,000 was in 1314, a fortune beyond the dreams of avarice. So that took place at Cambus Kenneth Abbey. And of course, it happened. That's the amazing thing. So when you're at Canvas Kenneth Abbey, you're in the vicinity of the place where Robert the Bruce got together with the Scottish church and they said, when the time is right, we will together make you king. And it came to pass. He was king by 1306, Battle of Bannockburn in 1314, and by the end of his life, in 1329, Robert is, is recognised as an independent king of Scotland. And So a sequence of events was set in train at Canvas Kenneth Abbey. And also, in the aftermath of the Battle of Bannockburn at Cambus Kenneth, there was a parliament. Robert Bruce held a parliament in what was remembered in the abbey as Parliament Hall. And in there he took his revenge. He seized lands from those Scottish noblemen that had either stayed away from the battle or, worse yet, had fought for Edward II. So he, he seized land and distributed it to his supporters. And he also set in writing the line of succession... Those who, after his time who would succeed him, and that moment in Cambus Kenneth Abbey gave birth to the line of Stuart kings that everyone's heard of. All the Stuart kings but were also a direct product of something that Robert decided within the walls of Cambus Kenneth Abbey. With a modern sensibility, is tricky. Get your head around the fact that a religious leader was at the centre of all these political machinations and wielding so much clout. Uh, Yes, it's absolutely the case, though. William Lamberton was the Bishop of St Andrews, which was a very prominent and uh, influential and significant church within this uh, Scottish religious firmament. And the church was incredibly influential. A king, any king, was regarded as having received his power from God, divine rule. But they also accepted that the church, the senior churchmen, administered that power, that that divine power came to the king via the bishops. Because below God, the bishops and the men of the church were God's representatives on earth. And they oversaw coronations and they are brought into play things like, you know, holy water and blessed oil with which kings and queens were anointed. And that conferred upon religious figures great power. And so it wasn't only the case, far from it, with Robert the Bruce, but you could certainly say that bishop made king, to use a kind of a chessboard analogy there was a symbiotic relationship between the church and the monarchy. They needed each other. And it's also, in our secular reality, in our part of the world, it's hard to imagine how jealously and and seriously the church defended its power. And so because the Scottish church, at that time, had always regarded itself as an independent, separate entity. The last thing they wanted was to be a a junior branch of the English church, taking orders from the Archbishop of Canterbury or the Archbishop of York. They wanted to perpetuate the status quo, which had them as their own boss. You know, they didn't answer to anyone except the Pope and God. But they didn't have to go through a chain of command But because roaming the land, there was a king like Edward I, the English king Edward I, was an exceptionally ambitious and power-hungry individual. He was a fantastic king. There's no getting away from it. I mean, he was a big, tall man, handsome, a fantastic athlete, a clever. He was a skilled operator, brave in battle, a clever tactician, a sharp operator politically... And the Scottish church realised that in him There was a kind of a great white shark in the water That they were worried about So they were looking around for their own dangerous predator And then they saw him Because you know, Robert Bruce obviously goes down and, For lots of Scottish people as a as this quintessential hero But he was a... <laughs> you've got to be careful with your language He was a hard man And he was brutal He killed as many Scots as any English king ever did. He was challenged late in the day by rivals in Buchan, which is a county of Scotland, and he knocked over the leader of that faction in Buchan and then he laid waste to the entire county. He ordered the slaughter of every man, woman and child and every farm animal in Buchan. Buchan was sterile for a generation because of what Robert Bruce did to his, his own people, but people that he regarded, well, rightly or wrongly, as rivals. So don't be under any misapprehension that Robert Bruce was some kind of um, only a good guy. He was a medieval man. And he was, you know that, that line in The Usual Suspects, you know, Kevin Spacey's character, uh, talking about Kaiser Soze. And Kevin Spacey's character says of Kaiser Soze, he realised that you didn't need bombs or guns. What you needed was the will to do what the other man wouldn't. Prepared to do the unthinkable, the undoable. Well, Robert Bruce was wired up like Kaiser Soze. And in order to demonstrate how determined he was to get what he wanted, which was the Scottish throne, he would do anything to anyone. And he did. So William Lamberton, a a bishop, a churchman, a man of God, turns to a character like Robert Bruce because he thinks there's the man that's going to protect the church because we can help him. Quid pro quo, if I scratch his back, he'll scratch ours. Talk about going into a deal with the devil. You know, William Lamberton knows Robert Bruce for what he is. A hard man, a strong man, a Vladimir Putin, a, a Stalin... A figure who'll do anything to get what he wants. So they enter this deal in 1304. And then, when it starts in 1306, you know, when Robert Bruce is in Dumfries and he takes a knife to his rival, John Cumming, the Lord of Badnach, in front of the high altar in Greyfriars Church in Dumfries, and then hightails up to Schoon and has himself crowned king, w- William Lamberton realises then, if he didn't know before, exactly what sort of <laughs> character he's unleashed. And, they, and the church gets on board They say, right, well, that's it The die's cast We're, we're going now for, Come hell or high water You know, and they come on board And then for the next year after year after year Robert fights and kills and fights and kills To get what he wants Which is to secure the, the throne of Scotland For himself, for his descendants And by God he does So history is thick there then History is thick At Cambus Kenneth Abbey. And when we were excavating there, you know, we spoke to people that lived in the houses nearby, and quite a lot of them, quite sober, straightforward people, had tales to tell about having seen what they regarded as the ghosts of monks, either in the Abbey or, or sometimes in their own homes. We had all sorts of stories about people that said, "Yeah, I've, you know, I, I walked into my kitchen one day, and there was a figure in a in a grey hood and grey robes, you know." And that, we had all sorts of stories. So, so it, it's an atmospheric place without a shadow of a doubt. And then there, there is this cemetery, and the body of King James the is buried in there beside his wife. It all happens there. There was a battle uh, called Sochyburn, which is another suburb of Stirling. And there was a battle there at which King James Third was murdered, possibly, possibly with the collusion of his son, who became James IV. So it's, it's all there. There are echoes, if you like, in the air of Robert's machinations for power, and then of the Battle of Bannetburn itself, and then of the aftermath when he decreed that the Stuart line would come into being after his time. And then... There's the burial place of James Third, one of those Stuart Kings. It all happens at Cambus Kenneth. So if you're wired up like me and you want to go to places where you can at least trick yourself into believing you're standing in the midst of the past, Cambus Kenneth Abbey is one of them. Race dipped in their own blood. A brutal family feud that stained fields from one end of England to the other a deep crimson. Carnage cutting short the lives of tens of thousands of soldiers. A civil war that raged for 30 years and laying peacefully in the hallowed air of a majestic abbey is the mother who began the unifying Tudor line. Next time, in my Love Letter to the British Isles. Check out Neil Oliver Love Letter, the podcast's Instagram account. And to ensure you get each new episode of the podcast as it goes live, don't forget to subscribe, write a review and share with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. Social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is taken care of by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by All Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.